just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Book Club Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, I'm very privileged to be joined by Professor John Haffenden, who's the biographer of William Empson and John Berryman, and most recently has been engaged in the monumental task of editing T.S. Eliot's complete letters for publication. He's up to volume eight, but he's just had a bombshell dropped on him, because over Christmas, we've had a sort of brouhaha, you could maybe go so far as to call it a stooshy about the opening of an archive of about 1,100-odd letters from T.S. Eliot to his first love, Emily Hale, in the Princeton University archives. John, welcome. Why has this been such a, a sort of explosive thing, leaving aside for a moment your own difficulties well, as an editor? Yes, yes. Bombshell, I think you called it. We can say it's also a benison. It's a huge gain in our knowledge of, of T.S. Eliot. It's it's been a long time coming. We some people have known about this for fifty years. I suspect I've known about it for more than forty. Um, you know, one always thinks I'm of a certain age now, and I'll never see it through. But it has come to pass that this thing has suddenly, after so many years, been revealed, and it is the most astonishing find. One expected a few love letters, um, chatty things, but in fact, they're letters of extraordinary depth and range. And we get whole new dimensions, I said it in the plural deliberately, whole new dimensions to this man, which we never suspected before. He opens his heart in every way to her. He doesn't mind putting his heart on his paper for a woman he doesn't know very well, oddly enough. But he thinks he's been in love with her for 15 years or so, since he met her in the early 1910s. And they're, they're incredibly full, heartfelt searching, rapturous letters, at least in the first days. The ones we I've think read of so him far. ordinarily, don't we? So they're kind of relatively buttoned-up character. Exactly, the famous line. Four-piece suit. The four-piece suit line is, comes to mind always, you know. The man of immense reserve and protocol and politeness, but a man who holds himself in check, even in the published letters so far. He's very aware of the spectator, as it were, the person he's writing to, yeah, I mean, he's very sympathetic in the letter. Even when it's a rejection letter, almost always he writes a different rejection letter. You you know that feeling, how difficult it is yeah. to find a formula. But he'll find a formula for that individual because he knows, even if it's somebody he's never heard of, somebody from the provinces, somebody who may not have much talent, he should encourage them, you know, give them something. And, and invariably he does. So beyond all that, what we know so far about him, the man of f- formal behaviour, suddenly we get this, as I say, depth of field, which is quite astonishing. In some of the letters, for example, I've, I've picked around so far, but in some of the letters, he, um, 1932, even 1933, he starts talking about, on his travels, say, in America, where he went for a year as Norton lecturer at Harvard. He goes around various places... And he's extraordinarily attentive and sympathetic and sensitive to the people he meets. Some famous, some not so famous, but he'll characterise them in detail. Even in a casual encounter at a party or somewhere, he'll he'll say if he likes them and why he likes them. He'll say what he's been doing, why he likes this lecture he's written or why he thinks that is hopeless. 
So you get extraordinary candour coming through. So these sort of closer to being almost the, the diaries he didn't write. Well, it does feel like that, certainly. The, the, the point, uh, I should say, this, this notion that's got about that he was rapturously in love with her for 15 years and come the day in 1947 when he decides he can't marry her and doesn't love her enough to marry her. I suspect the story of the arc told in his letters, which we don't know yet, will we'll explain all that. She's, in a sense, not resistance, not the right word, but it would seem, since we don't have her letters anymore, that she stands back somewhat for months after months, that she's not giving him what he would like, obviously, as a lover. But more than that, he, he offers himself to her in all sorts of ways, spiritually, as a moral support, as a lover, and so on and so forth. It's the sense in which she reserves herself. In other words, she's not instantly in love with him. There comes a day, obviously, when she does fall in love with him, because his courtship is prolonged and sustained, and presumably, how wonderful to receive these letters. I would fall in love with him instantly. (laughs) But we don't don't have her letters to him, because as he said in his preface, which we'll get on to, he had a colleague destroy them. Why do you think he did that? It's difficult to know, of course. I, I think he was... A, a lot of hurt comes out at the end. She decided in the 50s to deposit all these in the library at, at Princeton with, without checking with him first at all. And he was hurt by this, and he says, well, I really don't want curators and others reading these things in my lifetime. It's not unusual to feel these are personal letters I wrote to you. He never kept a copy of his letters, by the way, to her. Right. So it was entirely, she was the audience, she was the recipient, this was a gift to her. It was a posterity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes the notion of posterity, he's very aware of his status, shall I say. He's aware, for example, that even amongst close colleagues like Geoffrey Faber and John Hayward, the um, tutorial man, that in some way they treat him as a symbol. You know, he can do that sense that here I am, entirely at ease with these people, but that I know they treat me as something special. In a bust, as it were. So he's, he's constantly aware of that to and fro between posterity and the demands of posterity. His fame, which means little to him himself, but he knows others bestow it on him. So come the day, as I say, in, in, in the mid-50s, when she decides to... Their affair, as it were, has petered out. He's told her. He's 47, he's decided he hasn't he's not ghosted marry her. her. He hasn't ghosted her in 47. He's been to see her and talk it through with her. He visits her in subsequent years. So he's endeavouring to clearly, this is surmise, it's a great deal, but it's clearly trying to carry on a, a decent friendship with her. But he's taken aback when she does this. Why um, do you think she does it? I, I haven't yet got to the bottom of that. She knows he's a man for posterity. She doesn't want these um, letters to be destroyed. Who would? Anybody with, uh, who's had that intimate touch with greatness wants to keep their works and their 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 intimate writings, after all. But she could have left it in her will to a library, yeah. could have kept them, or she could have kept them under seal in a bank and said, when I die, these can be released to... Uh, so it's difficult to decide... I mean, it's exactly it's quite why. an aggressive act in it some way. It could seem, and may, there may have been a, a hint of vindictiveness on her side. I can't tell, you know, that for, for years she did expect him on the death of his wife, to marry her, that, that, that much is clear. And he's honest enough and sensitive enough to realise at certain point that he was hiding behind this restriction 
that as an Anglo-Catholic, he couldn't marry again and divorce while his wife was, wife was alive. So I think it gives him a screen of a sort. I, I mean, I want to be as sympathetic to him as possible in this, not just because I'm a fan, but because I think he comes out of it very, very well. But for that final statement, which has just been released. Yes. I mean, um, just, just before we mention the final statement, I wanted to, you, know, you mentioned his first wife. Obviously, this is a huge part of the story. Yes, marriage, exactly. Catastrophic marriage to Vivian Haywood. Mm. His correspondence with Hale, if I'm right in understanding, only really picks up after he and she are separated, doesn't it? I mean, yes, we don't have yes. a kind of real-time description of his, as I think he put it, miseries with Vivian, do we? No. I mean, he touches a, a few times in the letters, but mostly in the letters to her that I can see, he's regarding Vivian as something for himself, not, not a burden for her, as it were. So he'll, he'll mention the fact that his wife is distressed, distraught, behaving curiously, to say the least, weirdly at odds with social decorum and so forth. But he is determined to do what he can for Vivian. He knows this is his duty, this is his burden, and he will meet it. He will not walk away from it. You know, he will do whatever he Doesn't can. Virginia Woolf have some absolutely horrendous line oh, about yes. Vivian being like a sort of sack of ferrets around Tom's yes, neck? Or, yes, you know. yes. She's very good at the harsh word. <laughs> um, you know, she can sum things up like that. I mean, that may be overstated, we hope, but there's plenty of evidence that uh, Vivian, you know, was a, a very, very sad life, very distressed, very mentally disturbed from an early age. There's no question about that. And it gets worse and worse. She gets very paranoid. She accuses her neighbours of spying on her and leaving muck at the door and God knows what else. Constant kind of hysteria of neuroses going on. So he has to handle the wife, as it were. But in the letters to Hale, it's not as if he's saying, be my lover. He's offering himself to her in terms of love. But it's a very pure-minded love. He's a very, very high-minded man. In the, letter, in the statement you've just um, mentioned, he says, which many, many on the social media have picked up on, this phrase about, I must say, I never had sexual relations yes. at any point with Miss Hale. And people say, they were, what a bastard, <laughs> you know, what a dreadful thing to say, you know, me to him, instantly. Because well, it's, it's a, but I think it's actually a tribute historical to Historical record as well. You know, we're dealing with a historical period, a man who's born in the Victorian age, and it's developed. His parents are very, very holy, decent people. You know, they have a, a high sense of decency and what is chastity and so forth. And so he's actually paying tribute to Hale. It wasn't just a loose arrangement. He wasn't going to consummate a love until they were married. And if they don't marry, then, you know, at least she's unsullied by his vile desires, as it were. <laughs> I mean, I put that in a parodic way, obviously, but. But you see my point, you know, it's like yeah. he's actually, I think, saying, you know, do not think this is a, a slut who just, you know, was my mistress. Yes, he's, not doing, he's sort of not you doing know, it out. She was, she was a woman whom I respected for years and years and still do. But it's, um, I mean, that statement that he made, which was a lot, I mean, it's a sort of the circumstances of its composition, what it says, you know, he, he basically appends a statement to the archive saying... As soon as anybody gets in to see these letters, I mm. want this statement released. Yes, and it's sort yes. of... I mean, though he does say, you know, I didn't have sexual relations with her, he also says, I only imagined I was in love with her. Yes, yes. Now, do you quite Which find that? Which is a very that? hard saying. As I say, I, I would withhold judgment on that. Not that I would ever judge him, but you know what I mean. 
It's, it's very difficult. Um, the early letters do profess love, but he's writing, in a sense, a woman he's met perhaps six, seven, eight times in the early 1910s, 1912, 13, 14. This is when he was at Harvard. Exactly. And then once or twice later when she comes to London, they're meeting again in approximately 1930, I'm not sure of the exact date yet. She comes to London and he has her to dinner with his wife, Vivian. He's relieved that Vivian likes Emily. You know, in fact, he says that Vivian is almost infatuated with you because you're such a lovely person. So, you know, in other words, he's doing the proper thing. He's introducing an old friend to his wife. And it's after that that he suddenly has this resurgence of feeling for Emily. It brings it all back to him. And he tentatively writes to her and says, you know, I have been in love with you for years. So I don't think we need doubt his motives or his, or his sincerity of feeling, really, at that stage. As you say, there's like this vast, and it's not a loop or an arc, it's obviously a complicated process, including six years during the war when he doesn't see her at all. In the 1930s, he sees her at some point every year. That stops after 1930. They summer together, don't they? Is that they right? summer yeah. together in Chipping Camden with her guardians, Dr. and Mrs. Perkins, who are um, religious people. She is Unitarian, by the way, whereas Elliot is high Anglo-Catholic loyal. And of course, that's going to make to tension between them. Yes, there's also um, a sort of note in that statement where, yeah. slightly prickly, where he says, you know, yes. couldn't you respect my religious feelings? I... Yes, and I think there's a good point to that, actually. I mean, perhaps she should have done. She's not confirmed in the Christian church. She doesn't believe in Christianity as a Unitarian. She believes in something else, which is not a transcendent faith. He devoutly believes in this, and it's, it informs his life. Now, many people are sceptical of religion these days, but I think one has to credit the man for being so sincere about his religious faith. Therefore, when, <laughs> she, when she kindly accompanies him to church, and she, he finds her at the altar rail taking communion, in which she does not believe, he's bothered by this, to say the least. You know, so doctrinally it offends him, and clearly he does say things. There's intimations in the early letters even that they not so much quarrel, but they're at odds over religion. At some point, I'm paraphrasing, in which she says, obviously, your religious faith is superstitious and the church is very bigoted. Possibly she uses those very words, but yeah. she's quite harsh. In other words, saying, I stand where I am. I believe in the more social, as it were, um, faith that I conduct weekly. You believe in this transcendent God of the Christian faith. I cannot meet you on that ground. So there's a tension between them. Yeah which would affect any relationship as it proceeds. So come the day, you know, I keep on avoiding this final question, come the day when he, as it were, at least puts down what he's felt about her. It's a very, um, one has to concede, it's a, a pretty dismissive letter, isn't it? Yeah. Disavowing what seems to be evident in the letters. But I think that's evidence of his anger. He's an old man by now and he doesn't want this to be taken as the final word. And he's still annoyed with her for, for betraying him in, the, in this way, depositing letters. And it, it was a betrayal because clearly the librarians and staff of Princeton did look at these things. I happen to know they sent them off to a valuer in New York to assess them. So clearly that valuer was looking at his love letters. So Elliot surmised... The, he didn't know that. There's a letter to her, isn't there, where he says, you know, I don't see how this 
phrase, you know, I, of growing interest or whatever it is yeah. that someone is sent to, a librarian is sent to yes, her, exactly. could imply anything other than that they've opened Well, it's clear. He's right, too. Yeah. You know, he's, he's a good critic. He knows what a phrase means and its implication. I think she denies it and said, no, no, no. He just took them as pages. Yeah. But Wait, come on. Yeah. You know, human nature, you're bound to have a look at some. Even the best will the world. I think the man Dix, who was then archivist, was a very honourable man, but even so. I, I think he's right. Uh, so that annoyed him. He, he obviously felt, you know, if, if these things are left to posterity, then let them be released after my death, after your death, which is eventually, of course, what she agreed to, that they should take 50 years. But he's still very annoyed. And also bear in mind that he's married the true love of his life. By well, that was what Valerie. I was going to say. Does, is, does Valerie's presence, is Valerie who lodges this statement with the Princeton? Yes, yes. And, and she had read it. it and she had read it. Yeah. Is there a suggestion that to some extent he's retconning his feelings, as it were, borrow a phrase from comics, in order to kind of essentially please pay tribute to Valerie? I mean, has, is she over his shoulder when he's writing this statement, do you think? We, being the sceptical generation, have to feel so. <laughs> You know, clearly, you know, he writes it and possibly, I don't think she typed it, but often she did type documents for him. He had a complete love and trust in her. And so there is that, you know, absolute tribute to her love, the total constancy, the total selflessness of her love for him. Which, so, you know, does that automatically go with dismissing somebody else? Or, or is it a moment in his life when he lacks that even-handedness to judge that he can only applaud what Valerie has given him and this totally reciprocated love he feels with her as against something that he now thinks an aberration and he's saying so. So many people will regret this statement. I have to weigh it for months frankly and and, yeah. and obviously I want to I want to assess it in the context of the all these letters. Yes. Now, the, there is a line from the statement that jumped out at me rather more than the, the you know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Yes, track, exactly. Right. The Clinton the moment. Clinton line. Yes. But Which, when, as I say, is, is not Clinton-esque at all, if there is such a... Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's where he says that, you know, he doesn't regret his marriage to Vivian because, to me, it brought the state of mind out of which came the wasteland and it saved me from marrying Emily Hale. Emily Hale would have killed the poet in me Vivian nearly was the death of me, but she kept the poet alive. Do you think that tallies with with your view of it? I mean, do you think this was just too harsh? Would he be been a poet anyway, or do you do you think there's something in what he this says? This is there? very difficult to estimate, isn't it? I mean, he was extremely lacking in egotism, really. It's remarkable how selfless, how how generous he is to everybody and doesn't think about himself in situations. So whether he actually feels that these people must support, even celebrate my work as a poet, that sensitivity to a lack of support, you know, this person doesn't care what I write, doesn't comment on what I write. I mean, I don't know, I'm not a poet myself. But on the other hand, when I write a piece of prose, I would like my partner to appreciate it. You know, one does. You don't want them saying, oh, I I don't want to read it. Tom, Tom, don't bother me with that. <laughs> it, it's, it can be demoralising. He might be just yes, registering Yes, a slightly snitty line in here where he says, you know, Emily wasn't very interested in poetry, or in my poetry especially, yes. you know, with underlined well, my. A letter I have read, which is, um, was in the Princeton Archive uh, for many years, and accessible, in which remarkably, I think she's writing to Willard Thorpe, 
a professor at Princeton who helped negotiate this leaving of the, of the letters to Princeton, in which she says, I don't think I'm in the poetry at all. The poetry isn't about me. But Emily Hale says it. Yes. Yes. I'm not quoting exactly because I misremember the phrase. But it's, it struck me as remarkable because we've known for years that probably Burnt Norton is, of, yeah, yeah. in some sense, inspired by her and their joint visit to the house of Burnt Norton. At least one of the reports from the early reads, which maybe you can confirm, where people yeah. had started to scan this archive, yeah, yeah. have said that actually he's very specific all the way through about saying, you know, this poem was for you, this was inspired by yes, you. Yes, that's, was, that's you know, why I find it all the more remarkable that, that, that she thinks she's not in the poems. Maybe she thinks... There wasn't, as it were, a a voice in the poems that spoke directly to her with love, that is often couched through metaphor, symbolism, and this meditative mode in which she engages. Even Bernd Norton, after all, you know, the the path we never took and the gate we never opened. It's abstract. It's it's perusing a circumstance. It's meditating on past and future. If it's about a woman who's present to him, it's a strange way of addressing her because it's also an elegy, if you think about it. It's about things, you know, decisions which we did not take. Um, You've got some ghostly children in it, but there are no real human figures, are Yes, yes. Being irresolute comes to mind. It's not exactly that, but it's about firm decisions and decisions postponed, decisions suspended. So it's, it's a sequence very much as it were, in the air, isn't it? You know, we don't know where it's going, where it comes out. It's it's a beautiful rhythm of meditation, but it hasn't got that resolution of, here I declare my love. You know, it'd be difficult to, to say that's speaking to her, unless it was by way of negative, saying the, the gate we never opened, and it yeah. might therefore be a very, very couched metaphorical Extremely, hint. Extremely, yes. <laughs> you know, well, that, that uh, does, let's open the gate. But well, that does bear on this, this question, which I think is kind of really fascinating. And you'll um, no doubt have a very rich view on it as someone who's spent a lot of time with Eliot the man yeah. through his letters. Yeah. It's sort of how personal are his poems? Because in some ways, as you say, you know, particularly four quartets are kind of extraordinarily, you know, jewel-like and impersonal. Yes. But, you know, he said the wasteland was a kind of personal metrical grumble or words exactly. that effect yes. you know yes. I mean yes. d- does the light shed direct life shed direct I, work on I, it, I, like I think it art? will more and more and, and particularly through this huge swathe of letters because uh, he's very generous he picks out things if, if, if she's asked about something he'll tell her and we get to know things we would never know before for example that he says um, he got to know Stravinsky slightly in his early years and Partly because Petrushka underlines the hollow men. And you think, ah, did I know that? What does that mean? And so he's constantly aware of sources, influences, um, motives. But he also reserves something. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Sweeney Agonistes, which in the early 30s he says is the best thing he's done so far, which is hugely neglected so far. It's performed by a group at Vassar College, I think, in 1933. He likes what they've done, but he thinks they've got it the wrong way around, realism as against symbolism and so forth. And he says, basically, they don't get near what it meant to me. So the, the words in that extraordinary jazz syncopated dialogue mean an awful lot to him. So he's throwing out these hints. Look a bit closely. Look a bit closely. He, so far, he's not explaining what it meant, you know, I was heartbroken at that moment or whatever you might expect of a poem. 
he never simplifies, he, but he will he will readily be the agent of releasing a bit of information and saying that yes, these people got that wrong and this means something else. They also, didn't, um, I mean, isn't it widely held that the you know the notes he supplied to the wasteland were you know some of them helpful and some of them rather oh, kind yes. of di- you know well, misdirection or parody or he knew that you know. You know you know the story that once it was put in the volume, he had to have a few pages, and I, <laughs> I, I half credit that, you know, because the notes are um, in some way quite, quite misleading. So he enjoyed that game. He's a man of huge humour. This this will come out, you know, more and more as time goes on. He's very, very good company. People like his company. He's anecdotal. He's anecdotal in these letters. Something we're not used to seeing. It's only totally um, the other, in the the other letters, the personal and the other letters. I mean, the, the yeah. volumes you've gone through. Yeah. What you know is the Elliot we meet there different than the Elliot, say, as undergraduates we encounter through his work. It, it is different, yes. But in the letters published so far, the eight volumes of of published letters, we're meeting a man who has a public face and knows it, and has a formal role as an editor and a publisher and knows it, and he has to encourage people and, and be that formal mediator, mentor. He knows he's often a mentor, and he enjoys that role enormously. You know, he's, he has that enormous kindliness about him. Sometimes one fears that even people who are, to other people, would be no-hopers, he'll invite them to come and have a chat in, Queen, in um, Russell Square with him, you know, just to sort of try and help them out and direct them and so forth. But the chat will last two or three hours. What a thing. Yeah, you know, three hours with Elliot. Whenever you're in London, just give me a ring, make an appointment, come and chat to me, have a cup of tea. That would be, an, I would love that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you rather he was here <laughs> <Yeah>. than me? <laughs> um, um, so I think, and certainly these letters to Hale personalised the man in an extraordinary new degree. You know, he, as I say, I said earlier, he opens his heart, but he'll also be quite upfront about his perceptions, his observations about people, about life. He'll ruminate aloud about what his task in life is, his ambitions. So, you know, as you said, I think it's partly diaristic, but yes, I would allow for that. You know, that I wish he'd kept a diary throughout his life because it, clearly it's, it's um, an expansive feeling which he's now allowing to room to breathe and to come out and be spoken to this one individual. Now you've, Unfortunately, it's now to us as well in due time. Now, you, you've got your mitts on these letters, which lots of people haven't so far. How, you, I've never got, got, I haven't got my mitts on the letters themselves. I have a digital copy, but um, which is closely guarded, of course. I'm, you know, under oath as editor. Not, oh, they're, they're not putting them online for the world to see? Is no, that? no. Well, of course, the, the estate of Elliot have agreed through favour and favour to publish all some online, some in volumes and so on. So there's no case for putting them online in this case, yeah. at this stage, oh, because, course, yeah. um, you know, if, if there are, sure de- even by mid-2021, after all, it's not long to wait. People are now rather scandalously, in my view, and unnecessarily blogging about them. But that's very, very misleading, anybody's paraphrase. You know, it doesn't, doesn't give the real thing. And a paraphrase always includes interpretation. So I think that process which I understand completely, but it seems to me an amateur gambit to release things which are held in copyright till 2035. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's a simple legal matter, but also there's, um, you know, the, the, the moral right to hold these letters, to disseminate the information in the letters, 
everything that copyright represents, which is not just the words, as you know, it's contents as well, it's information, it's ideas, all that's in copyright. But that will be released in, in good time by the estates, you know. They they are very keen for the public to see these things. Now you're, them. You, know, you mentioned legal matters. There's also a sort of practical issue for you as the editor. You've just about got up to volume... I think you said said you put to bed volume nine, which takes us up to about 1941, which overlaps. Well, it's hovering over the bed. Hovering uh, over the bed, overlaps <laughs> substantially with with this material. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Are you going to kind of do a separate volume of the Emily Hale letters? Are you going to kind of republish some of the previous volumes of these letters threaded into them? What, what well, the it, it would be difficult you? to republish earlier volumes. Whether, whether that's justified for future generations remains to be seen. But obviously that's a very, very costly thing to do for a number of dedicated souls who will buy them new. <laughs> yeah. But of course at some point the whole thing might be put online. Yeah. You know, probably after my death as things go, I'm getting on myself, you know. But uh, there will be a dedicated publication of the Emily Hell letters. You know, the, the estate is very sensible about these things and they, they recognise for years now that we have to meet the public demand to see these things. Valerie Elliott was more guarded about things and didn't want to release things until she'd edited and processed them and so forth. But the, the estate nowadays is much more open about these things and wants to put them in the public domain. So, so there will be a dedicated volume. As I say, it remains to be seen what exactly we can do. I'd guess it's at least half a million words of, in these new letters which could be three or four volumes at least. Whether the publishers will be up to that or whether they would like to stage it, I have no well, idea. I'm quite serious about doing, you know, I mean, each of your, your volumes of the collected cover, you know, a couple of years. Um, I know. Three so years in some cases. Three years in some know, cases. But, you know, where, they're, where, they're, yeah, yeah. they're certainly producing um, a scholarly edition for Yes, yes, and I think that's important, you know. Um, a scholarly edition is had to be presented totally from outside. That's why we have no opinion at all. I, I, although I'm visible in notes and so forth, I want to be invisible. You know, I'm, I'm just the medium to put these things out there, and that's the way it should be. You know, good scholarly editions. You know, if you have intrusive footnotes and footnotes going on excursions into ideas and so forth, which you want to say you're going wrong, but um, you're just presenting material for the reader, for the fan, the general reader, the scholar, to study and to make their own assessments of. So thank God I don't have to do that. <laughs> I, obviously, being human, I will make my own private assessments, but I'll try not to let them be known, not even to use them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, but well, as I say, there will be a dedicated volume. Maybe, maybe we can do you know, a, a box set of two. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Go on, Faber. As do I say, it. This, uh, this has yet to be... Um, decided, but um, now, it will be done well by Faber and by the estate. I know that. you mentioned, you know, Valerie was quite close. I mean, you know, you could always say sort of smog-like in, in kind of squatting <laughs> on these riches. Yes. Um, yeah. Since her death, yeah. do you, is there a sense with the estate that now, you know, because for a long time, you know, people have trouble quoting from Elliot. Mm-hmm. Those, you yeah. know, Peter Ackroyd famously had that. Yes. You know, you've got no permissions at all. And I know, make I it know, all up. Is there the sense now that the estate's going to be much freer with permission for quotation? With, I mean, there's still an authorised biography to be done, isn't there? Yes, yes. And Will you do that? No, it's, it's not for me. I, I'm too old to do that. I would have done it ten years ago, but not now. <laughs> it, it will take huge energy. It'll have to be somebody much younger. 
who can deal with a, a new biography, including all this cache of, of new letters and so forth. You know, it will take many years to do. And clearly my energy in <laughs> will run out at some point. And no, I'm very happy doing what I do. You know, I, I, I like it. But is that a health thing? Is that thought there will be a kind of definitive biography I would have thought I would have thought so, but not yet. We we need to get this material out there, because if you commission a definitive, there is no such thing as definitive. If you commission an authorized biography, then in some sense you're saying this is endorsed by the estate of T. S. Eliot. Yeah. So this is the man or woman who we want to write this, and we will trust them totally to write a version which is not palatable as, as such, but in fact that we that we will believe in. Yeah. that we will know is is good and kind and generous and covers all bases and doesn't ignore things and so on. So, it's, you know, that miracle person will emerge, one hopes. But I, I imagine it'll be quite a few years yet, as I say, certainly sometime after the publication of the Emily Hale Cash. Yeah. Wouldn't you? I mean, it's very difficult. It's a lot uh, more While, while digest, material is still there? emerging, yeah. it's very difficult to say, you go in there now at this point. There may be more cash. Did the emergence of the cash kind of blindside you? I mean, I, I'm sorry, I should know this, but was it predictable that it was going to come out this January, or was yeah, it? Yes, yes, it'd been yeah, yeah, it was years. 50 years, yes. right, right, right. Yeah. So. I, as I was trying to say earlier, I, I've known for 45 years. I think I was told by my supervisor at Oxford, um, Richard Ellman, he was very quick to pick up on these things. I think he mentioned it to me. Um, so I've, I've known for, since I was a postgraduate student that these things are there. And, of course, at the time you think, well, you know, so what? Just a handful of blood letters. But as I say, the, um, the, the depth of field of these letters is going to astonish the world. I, I have no doubt about that. It's, it's already astonishing me. Yes, when I, you can I didn't read know it. this man could write so openly and freely about everything. Um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to find. Um, yeah. But you said, really, I mean, there's something you mentioned just before we started, started recording, that they become fainter and fainter. Tell us about that. Love this detail. Oh, yes, I was just saying to you as a a little anecdote, thank you for bringing it up, that um, there are several months in which he's using, obviously on his portable typewriter in his office, the same ribbon which is wearing out. And, of course, as you look at these things on the screen, they get more and more opaque. And you're reading, you know, you want things where you can scan a paragraph very quickly, but I'm reading word by word. So it obviously crosses one mind. And come a day in late 31, I think, where he says, this is hardly legible, I must get a new typewriter. <laughs> and, and then you wait, and you wait, and you scroll, and when do you get a new typewriter? Ribbon Tom, come on. <laughs> Your editor is here waiting to see this legibility. And, and it takes about another four months, and suddenly there's a new black ribbon. I don't think he mentions it, he just carries on. We can all identify that. I, I think in a sense it's, it, it's... People who don't like him will say, oh, he didn't care about legibility, he didn't really care about the woman he's writing to because he didn't care. He's, there's no doubt that she could read them, all right. But um, it just strikes me as perhaps odd if you're writing to somebody, telling them of your love, you'd, you'd kind of like them to read this, wouldn't you, clearly? <laughs> Uh, very high-minded but, I, but I think he's just so busy to go out and get a new ribbon from whatever shop. He hasn't got time for that. Got to move on to the next thing. He's an amazingly busy man from 6.30 every morning till midnight and beyond, you know. He's always got things to do. You know, so far, the letters so far are very bulky. No, I love them, um, yes. Yes. I should, since I've got you here, as a fact, it's been in the news, you mentioned Elliot as a man of great humour, more than as often as... Mm. 
do you think he'd have made of the cats? Cats the movie. Oh, yeah, well, what would he have made of? Have you been serious as an Elliot professional? I, I have. Yes, yes. Well, it is a curate's egg, isn't it? It's good in parts. I, I think Alexandra Haywood is just marvellous. She's so watchable, magical presence on the screen. I, I think even James Corden did his part very, very well, quite captivatingly. I found the plot um, questionable. It never really had a plot, did it? It, it did, never had a plot. On the stage, this doesn't matter. I, I, I reviewed the thing in 81 for, I think, a quarter or somewhere like that. And it didn't matter because you were absolutely overwhelmed by the strength of, of energy coming off the stage and the music and, and Elaine Page singing memory in the most in a way that put your head on, head on end. So on stage, there's no question it works because it's a kind of gallimaufry, it's song and dance. Yeah. You know, you're not worried about the plot at all. But this plot where McCavity suddenly turns out to be a musician, uh, a magician, and spirits people off who are his enemies to a barge, uh, it does give one pause. Because <laughs> you think, what's this barge thing about? There's no real conflict here. He's just getting rid of the opposition. So I think that may be questionable. But I certainly wouldn't damn the whole thing like people have. It's quite extraordinary how people have, have torn it apart, haven't they? You know, The negative press has been astounding. I don't think it deserves that at all. Uh, you know, I would recommend people seeing it, actually. Have That's you seen it? Nice it? Have no, it? I haven't. I haven't. I've been put put off, but, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, yes, so there we are. You um, see. Well, in T.S. Eliot's house, there are many mansions. John yeah, Haffern, thank you very much indeed for your time. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening, and I very much hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please do sign up and rate and review us for whichever your podcast provider is. And even better, please tell your friends and family that the Book Club podcast exists. We also have an event to mention. The food writer and Bake Off star Prue Leith and her niece, the pastry chef Peter Leith, will be talking about their lives and love of food with, well... Me, Sam Leith. It's a bit of a family affair. It takes place on Tuesday the 24th of March at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster and you can book tickets at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash prue, P-R-U-E.